Okay, um, who was here last time I spoke? Good. Well, because of the um, slightly improvised nature of that talk, I had to go back and listen to it myself to hear what I'd said and that kind of thing. Um, so um, I'm hoping to link some of the things today. And uh, my wife told me that I shouldn't say smorgasbord, but I couldn't think of a better title. Anyone, can anyone explain what smorgasbord is? Nice and loud, Kim, in your big outside voice. There you go. So, some may think this is slightly incoherent today, but it's not. It's a smorgasbord of opportunities of different things. Okay. I would like you, if you have one, to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians. We're going to put our finger in that and come back to it. I'm going to lose this at some point. Um, and we're going to jot around a little bit of that. Yeah, here's an interesting thing. I know many of us are not bringing physical Bibles to the meeting anymore. And I, it was interesting um, with the time that we had with David Cassidy a little while ago to talk about developments in the church he leads. So his church, uh, he took over a church which at its height had been like 6,000 people in it and, and now it was down to less than 1,000. And, and I was interested to talk to him about rebuilding and one of the things he said is what he'd noticed is that if we just use uh, electronic devices to search for things in the Bible, we kind of get like a potted kind of point. We kind of dive into bits and we don't get the whole togetherness of it. Um, and I know that as I've switched around using electronic stuff and using uh, iPhones and stuff, you don't get that sense of context. So let me encourage you to start bringing a Bible in. If you'd like to have a lengthy discussion about Bible versions, I'm very happy to do that with you. Um, but, uh, so it's good to have a Bible with you. It's good to take notes um, so that we can refer back to stuff as well. And I think that's quite a practical step. I've listened yesterday. I, um, as you prepare for a talk, it seems like there's a rush of information that comes to you. And um, <clears throat> I listened yesterday to a podcast called the, This Cultural Moment. Has anyone come by that, This Cultural Moment? It's quite a new one. And they were talking about, um, they were talking about pre-Christian, Christian, post-Christian, uh, uh, to kind of work out the, the state of cultural affairs we live in. And one of the things they were saying is that unlike the pre-Christian period, the, the, the period that the early church was born into, the post-Christian period we're in now can't forget all of that. There are things in society and ways we look at things, the way our laws work, even the concepts of equality and fairness, all those kind of things, that are because of Christian influence. But the problem is that people don't want Jesus. They just want all the good bits. They want the kingdom without the king. And I thought that was a very profound statement to chew over because you, you can't have the kingdom without the king. It all goes wrong. It all starts falling apart. And there were various different things they were talking about. And one of them was related to reading our Bibles and, and having, having physical Bibles. And uh, in the midst of this podcast, they just gave a challenge. They said, why, do, why don't you get a quiet time, five minutes, half an hour, an hour if you can. Read a psalm. Lay it before God. And once a week, meet with another Christian for a meal. If you do that, you'll be streets ahead of lots of other people. Now, I think a lot of us are doing some levels of those things. 
But actually, it makes you realise. In fact, another thing they said was that young people see the Bible as a hindrance to faith. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? The Bible is a hindrance to faith. So it's interesting to kind of dwell on those things. We'll put the, uh, we'll put the links out on the, um, on the website, etc. So quick recap on last time. I wrote this for my own benefit as much as for yours. Uh, we looked at uh, 2 Timothy 2, verses uh, 3 to 6. So, a soldier doesn't get involved in civilian affairs. And we looked at what civilian affairs were, uh, being under the command of Jesus, not following uh, or justifying our whims. I don't know if I told you the story, but um, I've spent quite a bit of time online um, on Skype with uh, Mike Stevens and Mike, who came to speak with us back early January. Um, he spent a portion of time as a major in the Paras. Um, and he was involved in training, and he's been telling me lots of different stories about training. But he said, in, in the period where he was training soldiers, those soldiers who were about to be deployed to Northern Ireland were the most focused on their training. They were most serious, because they knew they were going into a battle zone, in that sense. For those of you who are young, Northern Ireland, when I was young, was a place where wild people lived. <coughs> Uncivilised. <laughs> You know, it's the kind of thing where the Bible talks about not taking a wife from a wild place, and a pagan wife. Right, sorry. My wife's at the back of the meeting here, so I'm not, she's not able to get things. But Rob looks quite excited as well, so that's good. Um, so when you're about to be deployed, you get really focused on the military stuff. You don't want to get involved in the political, civilian affairs, those kind of things. We looked a little bit at 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, talked about beat our flesh, beating those natural urges, those worldly urges, into submission. We talked somewhat about being righteous, not pursuing niceness. It's really seductive to want to be popular, to want to be someone everyone thinks is nice or kind, but actually we're called to righteousness. And part of the whole journey that I was talking about related to that was laying aside my preference laying aside the things I want to do, and potentially looking into being discipled and being disciplers. So that's a bit of a recap there. Um, Mark, Mark, because of his excitement, didn't do this song. So that means I need to sing it to you. Where's Ella? She does like me singing, so... Can I tell you something? Ella said, apparently in 16 plus, she says, it's good to know that you don't have to be able to sing in tune to lead worship. <laughs> so if I ever feel led to lead a song, I try to pick her out and go, this one's for you. Right, anyway. <clears throat> we may come back to this song. If you get nothing else from today, I think this encaptures it all. It's an old song that Tina... Not Tina Alexander at the time, but Tina Kent um, wrote. Uh, actually, um, Matt Stanford put the music round for, um, uh, for the worship band, and he showed a picture of a cassette and then explained what a cassette was, which was good of him. Um, change me, O Lord, from the inside so your love shine, shows on the outside. Change me, O Lord, make my life reflect you. I want to be a mirror for you, bright and shining, to reflect your glory. There's nothing I can do to make me more like you, but you can clean me, make me pure and holy. No one else can do it, love me, and see me through it. As you change me, rearrange me to be like you. 
In the stuff I'm talking about today, I want to be careful to, to kind of, you know, make some points that I've got some things I want to address in us, behaviours. I am not saying I've got it together and you haven't, all right? Um, I've had plenty of opportunities this week to review my own behaviours and attitudes and be found wanting. So, um, but this is where I'm at. So I'm a fellow traveller with you on this. And this is my prayer, that I could become more like Jesus, that I might reflect him. And, and all the com- complexities and things that we can say and things we can explore about culture and life and all those things, ultimately, I want to be more like Jesus. And I believe that's what you want to be as well. And here's the interesting thing. We can be more like Jesus. It's not unobtainable. It's for us we can be more like Jesus in that sense. It's a great song. We should do it with the kids at some point as well. Right. Anne Smith. It is never a good sermon unless you can get Anne Smith to read something or tell a story. She has not got any puppets with her. I'm sorry about that. <clears throat> there you go. I sent Anne this text beforehand, but missed key bits out just for the sheer fun of it. <clears throat> so this is completely fresh for her. I was mindlessly channel surfing through scores of TV programmes to pass the time. I landed on a British journalist who was saying that Christians believe that if many of them live in a community, it will affect that community for good. The greater the Christian presence, the greater the benefit to the society at large. I agreed with the commentator. That is what we teach. He then proposed to look at the most Christianized city in America to see how this influence works out practically. He defined Christianized as the community with the largest percentage of believers regularly attending church. This, I thought, was a good conservative working definition of Christianized. By that definition, then, Dallas, Texas, was the most Christianized city in America at that time. More people per capita attended church on any given Sunday than any other community in the country. Churches abound in Dallas, and a large number boast full pews. Our journalists proposed to look at the social demographics of Dallas to see how this Christian blessing worked out within the community. He looked at the statistics and studies on crime, safety on the streets, police enforcement and the justice and penal system. He looked at healthcare, hospitals, emergency care, contagious diseases, the infant mortality rate and the distribution of caregivers. He reviewed education, equality of schools, safety, test scores and the graduation statistics. Jobs, housing and general economics were evaluated. Can you get a job? Can you get housing? Does potential income match available housing? He looked at homelessness and at programs for those unable to care for themselves. Is there equality, regardless of colour, creed or income? And so on. Each of these categories was evaluated according to racial and economic factors. The TV host looked at the statistics and information you would be concerned about if you were going to raise your children in a community. Will my children be safe on the streets? And at school, can they get a respectable education? Will I be able to house, clothe and feed my family? 
Will my children have blatant exposure to drugs and other destructive influences? Can my family be protected from disease? Is adequate medical care available if they get sick? Can I get legal help and fairness in the judicial system? Are the police interested in our protection? And is all of this true regardless of my colour, nationality or creed? About an hour of the programme went by and I was watching it alone. By the time my British host was done with the Dallas study, I was devastated. No one would want to live in a city in that condition. The crime, the decrepit social systems, the disease, the economic discrepancies, the racial injustice, all disqualified this community from having an adequate quality of life. And this was the most Christianized city in America. I wanted to weep. Thank you, Anne. I think it's important not just to assume, well, that's people just pitching up to church. I don't think it is. I don't think people just pitching up to church means that the pews are full and the, you know, there's... It's not just cultural. But it did make me think we could be having a nice time, having uh, great meetings, having great kind of Christian socialisation, but actually not affecting the world around us. And I think that's one of the things we've got to think about. What does that mean? There needs to be some kind of shape-up in that situation. And and that's the introduction of the book. I've not read the rest of it yet. I got stuck with that bit. So... But I think that's, that's partly what I'm considering there, is we could, we could have all these things that look right, that seem to have all the right indicators, but it's not actually making a difference. So, today, I particularly want to focus on those who are over 40. I know that nobody's over 40, but those of us who are over 40, I want to particularly focus on. And I actually want to focus on the men. I've got a lot of things to say to young people, and if I dare, I'd have lots of things to say to women as well, but I just want to focus on the men in that sense. Most represented, of course, by Homer uh, in that sense there. So um, I've got a real concern about the level of worldly thinking and mindsets that have seeped into the church, into you and into me. Um, that actually goes for any age, that kind of thing. And I think it shows in, in different, li- different ways. Partly, I think that um, we've got so focused at times at not wanting to impose Christianity on the world around us, that actually we're not colonised, that actually we've been colonised ourselves, that our thoughts have been colonised in that sense. And I think that's, uh, that's a dangerous place to be And I think we need to stop and think and kind of try to root those things out, partly by saying, change me, oh Lord. Yeah? In that sense. Um, I think, as I talked about last time, a lot of this is to do with my rights. My right to be able to speak up. My right to a job. My right to food. My right to health care. My right to do the things I want to do. 
I think a lot of that is, is worked out in that way. But I think it shows, a certain, and I think that the whole area of rights relates to what I would call the god of me, or the idol. And I'm going to keep on coming back to idols and talk about idols, because I think that's a key thing. Because I think, I think that whole idolatry is alive and well in us in lots of ways, and I think it needs to be rooted out. And we need to root it out, to some extent, by those straight conversations, those things of uh, discipleship, those things of being submitted and connected with one another. Right, if you have got your fingers in 1 Corinthians, we're going to have a look at a couple of verses here. <clears throat> so the first one we go to is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Now, I've still got my fancy Bible, which... Uh, doesn't read the way any other Bible is, but I've got to stick with it now because it's got large print. And until I've come to a realisation I need glasses, I've got to stick with this one. So I've now written in the words that the rest of your Bible says, so I know. So it says, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 says, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. In your Bible say, I have a right to do it whatever I want, or something like that. Yeah? Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I should not be a slave to anything. It's pushing us there to not be enslaved to the ways of this world, to not let our minds be enslaved in that sense. Right? Let's uh, jump back then to uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1 to 3. For my part, brothers and sisters... I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready. It's quite an indictment. I, I read, uh, I've been reading Corinthians recently. I found it really juicy and somewhat convicting at times. I've got a little statement up on my wall, and it's a little warning to me. It says, don't be placated by meat when you can feed... Uh, sorry, don't be placated by milk when you can feast on meat. I think so often our immaturity and our, our ways of being mean that we're not moving on to the bigger things of God. We're, we're not exercising ourselves. We're not getting hold of stuff. We're not taking on those challenges in that sense. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 18 talks about if you think you're wise, you're really not. And it's, uh, you, you may be wise in the ways of this world, but that's not wisdom as far as God's concerned. You see, there's different ways of thinking, different ways of looking, and we have to be aware of those. And then Corinthians 7, sorry, 1 first, first Corinthians 7, verses 29 to 31. Very interesting, again. There's a whole bit here which could kind of lead you to believe we shouldn't get married um, but that's not what you're really going on about. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those of you who have wives should be as though you had none. Those of you who weep, as though you do not weep. Those of you who rejoice, as though you do not rejoice. Those of you who buy, as though you didn't own anything. And those, of you, uh, and those who use the world, as though they did not make any use of it. For the world, in its current form, is passing away. He's listing off a bunch of normal things. Getting married, uh, mourning, rejoicing, buying, selling, those kind of things. He's saying, don't get caught up with that, because that stuff's going. Act as if it's not the reality, because there's another reality. 
Science has led us to believe that you know, reality is just the tangible things we can get hold of, and yet science itself reveals more and more things we don't know as time goes on. And it would, even by its own logic, it would deny that, but then move into a, a tangible reliant, um, things that we need to get hold with. So this whole sense, again, is about don't get caught up with this world. Don't get caught up with different things. In fact, um, it goes on, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2, says that we were led aside by speechless idols. A speechless idol would be a way of thinking, I think. We're led, as- led aside by those things, led astray, caught up. So all these warnings all the way through Corinthians about the ways of this world. And I think, combined with that whole idea of rights, I think this affects us in these ways. Now, let me be clear. I think we have an absolutely fantastic group of people. I think we actually have a fantastic group of men. Do I hear amen? Okay, just one woman agreeing. <laughs> the rest of the men are asleep. If anyone's asleep next to you, I know it's hot. I'm standing out, we've got water. If it's hot, give the person next to you a poke, just make sure they're with you. There you go. Yes, there you go. A couple of people very stirred there. I don't come to church to get preached at. I come for a good sleep. Right. Good. Um, let's see what's here. Uh, Bolt Sorge says, some people are mulish. A mulish. Right, like a mule. Took me a while to work out that one. Mulish. They don't get it. They pull away in ignorant independence from the very source of life and care and feeding. It refers to, it says, don't be like a horse, don't be like a mule. Don't just be led around, yeah? But they pull away from what God has from them. And I think some of that is our interaction, our rich interactions with each other. We pull away from those things. So I think this is part of the result of getting, to some extent, these attitudes in us, of not rooting out that worldliness, of becoming a bit complacent. I think... uh, And this is my concern, particularly for us older blokes. I think we can be serving, but inflexible. We can be available, but not present. Right, present is a drama term. It's like like a racer on on the ball of his feet, ready to have a run. It's present, you're you're there, right? Um, In teaching, but not teachable. Now, I could... Count how many people are making notes and say that as a way of suggesting that people are being teachable, but that might be unfair in that sense. It's interesting to see how many teachers are here not making notes because they wouldn't accept that in their own classes. Right, anyway, so, but I can be in teaching but not teachable. You, know, you get that idea. I can be there, but I'm not there. Yeah? And I can be in community but unsubmitted. The reason I put those two together is to be in community, to be in family, means there's interaction. And there has to be give and take. If you, if you sit down, as occasionally happens at our house, for a night of Netflix fun, there is often a discussion. And if we can get four out of five of us agreed about what we want to watch, that's great. But actually, often that's not the case. And I don't know if you're seeing increasingly the different pictures of people sitting around. I think I saw one recently. People were sitting around having a family meal in a restaurant together and everybody was on a different device. But they were together in that sense. But I think there's something about having to lay down my preferences, right? I have watched more rom-coms than I would really like to, okay? Heidi has had to watch the occasional war film. We are gearing up ready to watch Schindler's List again. I'll have to get my box of tissues ready. 
you know, just so Josiah can see that. And, uh, so, but, you know, we have to lay, that whole thing about laying, when we share our meals, uh, when, when we went to Northern Ireland last time, I think it's in the summer, um, out of the five days, the first five days, we were presented lasagna three times. Um, that, see, lasagna's a bit of a treat for us in our house because um, lasagna is what I call an export dish. We make it and give it away to other people. We don't tend to do it for ourselves because it's got two stages, hasn't it? I've not made it, I don't know. I make a spag bowl, you see, that's first stage, isn't it? Right, there you go. So lasagna's a treat, but you see, we had to kind of all get in the pot, enjoy the lasagna, even though it wasn't our preference. But that's actually part of the joy. When we give that something, when we, when we give in and watch the film or give in and share the meal, that laying ourselves down is actually what we're supposed to be. That's what family's about, isn't it, in that sense? So I think that's, that's part of the situation we're in. And, I, and it's my concern that we could be really great. I think we've got great, we have got such great serving in this church. It's utterly amazing, utterly amazing. I would give you a round of applause, but it is really good. Now, some of you are dying too, I know. Right? But, and if we say serving is like sacrifice, what's the word of God say? <coughs> to obey is better than sacrifice. So we can have great serving, but actually are we obedient? Are we submitted? Yeah? Right, so, remember Jamie talked about this a little while ago, about the wonder of the gospel, part of the best way of antidote to most things, certainly antidote in terms of how we look at evangelism, is actually how we get a little bit excited about the gospel. Or actually, in, in my terms, I would say, you could talk about first love. For those of us who grew up in church, sometimes we kind of say, oh, I'm not quite sure I mean, when I became a Christian. It was kind of stages. But that time where you had a revelation... Of God, that time when you got excited. I think we need to return to those things again. There is a danger in familiarity. So this is what I want to do. This is this is the second part of our schmorgers, and I'm going to skip some bits as well. So, um, I, what I want to do is I'll take us through a couple of images in the Bible. Yes, dust off your old brain. Some of you may know this, right? That's good. You need to share it with the people around because I've come across a lot of people who don't know this stuff. So, hands, bless him, hands amazing fellow he does say things that are quite rich yes um and he said this phrase at the start of the sermon and then didn't open it up at all we had a conversation about that he said god wants to tabernacle with us and then went off and did something else and i thought cool i could i could spend a long time on that so we're going to spend a little bit of time on it now so what does it mean that god wants to tabernacle with us well here's a tabernacle here yeah this is the uh this is a diagram of the temple. And we often talk about this. We talk about coming through into the courts. Uh, come through the gates, thanksgiving, courts with praise. And then this whole place of worship, that kind of thing. Of course, here's the veil, very cool, very key. And behind that is the Ark of the Covenant. And that is where the presence of God was. This is all pre-the death and resurrection of Jesus, in that sense. Okay? Oh, well, that wasn't... Oh, no, I'm going the wrong way. There we go. Right. Now... Do you remember this? Old folk here? So I was chatting to someone and they said, oh, what's the, what's the ark? What's that? I said, well, it's here. Here, Indiana Jones, he got it. There's the ark of the covenants. Very good picture, actually. Does anyone remember in the film what happens when, when the Nazis, there's always a good great film, always got Nazis in it. <laughs> right. When, they, when the Nazis get hold of the ark and they lift the lid off it, what happens? 
Right, basically there's light and stuff bursts out and they get completely mashed up, yes? Because it's the raw presence of God, that's the whole thing. So we, the reason I want to show you this picture is the fact that in here it's a raw presence of God. So only once a year was a uh, high priest allowed to go in there. He had to be consecrated, made clean, all that kind of thing. They put a rope around his leg and a bell. Why did they put a bell round his leg? Yeah, not going to find the answer on that phone, are you? Not quickly. Right, okay. Why they, why'd they put a bell? They knew when they stopped walking, meaning he was dead. Sorry, that was Scottish. Dead. Um, and why the rope? So I could drag him out. So we're talking about the presence of God not being something taken lightly. Okay? Not taken lightly. So God wants to tabernacle. This is the tabernacle. God wants to tabernacle with us. Oh, I'm on the wrong page. Let's go. God wants the place of his presence to be with us. That's a both a scary and exciting thought. So in that phrase, God wants a tabernacle with us is such a lot. Oh, ah, I was going to show this video. We're not going to do this one. It's a bit in Aladdin, where Aladdin's trying to, uh, where the genie is trying to explain what it's like being a genie. It says, almighty power. Oh, living space. And I think that's, the, that's a picture we get of Jesus. He's both man and God. And actually, that power that raised him from the dead is available to us as well. So we too could be a genie. Theological alteration there. We won't go into that. Right. Hold those thoughts about the, uh, the tabernacle to one side. Because a couple of months ago, we were singing a song, singing this song, uh, uh, Cornerstone it's called, and... I do like to text Neil with any theological questions during the meeting. We often have a little bit of a conversation. He's not, he's not playing Tetris, so you know he's answered my theological things. And I was saying, why on earth are we saying, my anchor holds within the veil? My anchor holds within the veil. We'll sing it with passion, right? I can bet you that probably 50% of you did not know what you were singing, right? Okay, which is a problem, isn't it? If we're singing a bunch of stuff we don't know, right? My anchor holds within the veil. Okay, so I went to have a little look at this. So the whole concept, so when darkness seems to hide his face, right? Here's being Jesus. When darkness seems to hide his face from us, that um, I rest in his unchanging grace, right? Because my anchor holds within the veil. So that must mean something useful for us. So I started to look up, what's anchor, what's anchor? Well, here's the anchor here, right? There's anchor, and it relates to this. There is faith shown by the cross, there is love shown by the heart, and there is hope shown by the anchor. So then, what are we talking about? Well, here we go. Here's the veil. My anchor, anchor is held within the veil. My hope is hooked onto the presence of God. Yeah? That's what we're singing So when darkness seems to hide his face, the truth is my hope is in the presence of God that I can have access to. Is that good? Next time we sing, my anchor in the veil, you can really sing it and know it this time. (laughs) Right, this is just an example. 
there is so much imagery and so much poetry. That, sorry, can I just, for the scientists amongst you, I think poetry and imagery is good, just so you know. I know some of you are sitting there, you know, with you, give me a formula, a bit of maths, I'll get excited about it. In, in my context here, I'm saying poetry, imagery is good. Okay, there's Paul. I knew he would feel this way, right? Because it's like the Bible and our songs are littered with hyperlinks of God's promise. So when we sing, that, so when we sing my anchor holds within the veil, it means all of that stuff I've just showed you, just quickly, yeah? I'm really excited. I'm really, Heidi and I are really into hope. We both did uh, the Crossroads course, and at the end of it, you're asked to write a kind of a tombstone-type thing. What do you want to leave behind? And I wrote hope, and I put it on the, the, mant- uh, the, um, the ledge in front of the sink, right in front of Heidi's eyes. Um, she then did the course, and she wrote, wherever I go, I want to leave hope. And she showed it to me as if it was a new idea. Isn't it marvellous that God brought us together with that same thing, even though she doesn't seem to be able to read? So, yeah. But that whole thing about being hope bringers is part of what I think God has brought within us. And that hope bringing has to be on the basis of the veil torn in two. So why is it significant, the veil torn in two? Here we have, at that moment, the curtain. I put the veil here because you can call either way. Of the type was turning to from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rock split, the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tomb after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. A bit freaky, right? Just by the death of Jesus, there's a whole bunch of people arrays and start strutting around in Jerusalem, okay? But there's other things, right? The earth shook. We're talking about a, uh, an almighty physical event because this curtain was torn in two. We come back to it again. My hope is in the presence of God, that presence of God that had that effect. When I think of the veil, that's always the part I think of. And actually, when it says a veil, it wasn't like a little, little, little veil. It was like a thick curtain of se- severe levels and that kind of thing. Right. So this one, I was going to go over some different other images, but I didn't think we'd get time, and that's why I coloured the slide, you see. We'll do that another time. Right. Now, what I want us to look at here, we've looked at, we went over the soldier doesn't get involved in civilian affairs. We talked a little bit about the spirit of this age and the whole draw to a worldly mindset and idolatry in that sense. We looked a little bit about what it is, some of the images and stuff in the Bible which we can capture hold of, which are for us. Yeah, And I could go on, I got all kinds of words. I was going to look at justified and redeemed and all those kind of things in their, in their non-religious sense. And I think it's important that we do those things, and I'm happy to go over those with people. That's great. Because we need to see that when we're singing stuff, and when we're reading stuff, it has a whole bunch of other meanings for us to get hold of. There's such richness. Richness, which is meat, not that being placated by milk. But I wanted to come now and play this song, which I didn't manage to embed, so the gents will put it up in a second. Um, but I just was reading this, which C.S. Lewis wrote a long time ago. He's talking about people and this wrestling between God's and his way of being and our way of being. 
And he said, these people have got rid of the tiresome business of adjusting the rival claims of, God, uh, of self and God by the simple expedient of rejecting the claims of self altogether. Rather than trying to hold it together, I'm, I'm not going to worry about self anymore. I'm just going to be submitted. The old egotistic, the old egotistic will uh, has been turned round, reconditioned and made into a new thing. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs, it is theirs. How about that? If our thinking was not our thinking, but his thinking. That's a great place to be. And you know what? Every time we come together on a Sunday to worship, every time you take time to worship, we have an opportunity to do that, to recondition, to realign, to come back. Let's, uh, let's play this song. I will hand back control. Clear the stage and set the sound and the lights ablaze. If that's the measure you must take to cross the idols. Jerk the pews and all the decorations too. Until the congregation's fueling half revival. Tell your friends that this is where the party ends Until you're broken for your sins You can't be social And seek the Lord and wait for what he has in store And know that great is your reward So just be hopeful Cause you can sing all you want to Yes, you can Is more than a song. Take a break from all the plans that you have made and sit at home alone and wait for God to whisper. I beg him, please, to open up his mouth and speak. Pray for real upon your knees until they blister. Shine the light on every corner of your life until the pride and lust and lies are in the open. Then read the word and put to test the things you've heard until your heart and soul are stirred and rocked and broken. Before my God 
is an idol And anything I want with all my heart is an idol And anything I can't stop thinking of is an idol That's the measure you must take to cross the idols. I love worship and I love music. I think it's a, a gift that God's given us. Can I have the worship team back while I'm talking? So what idols? I thought a few of them just sitting there. It's amazing how God brings to mind the stuff that we just meander along in life in and suddenly he puts his finger on a particular thing. God talks to me a lot through pictures and as we're sitting there, I almost felt myself lying on a spider's web and all of these different bits that I've attached myself to. And as I did that, he started to break him off one by one as I give them back to him. As he started to do that, there's a fear that came in me to sort of say, well, if you cut the last one, I'm done. Because at that point, I fall. And you know what? That's exactly where he wants us. Free falling with him. Free falling with him. With nothing. Nothing else I'm holding on to. Nothing else I'm clinging on to. We sing that song, don't we? There's nothing I hold on to. That's about that. It's about giving it back to him. Allowing him to take control. So Daniel mentioned the song, Change Me, O Lord. The band will sing it through a couple of times for you. Once you pick it up, let's use this to sort of say to God, this is what I want. This is my heart's desire. I want to be reflecting your glory. I want to be more like you. 